0: This episode is brought to you with support from HelloFresh. I love cooking and trying out new recipes, but lately I've been craving some extra help in that department. There's enough to do, and I just want it to be easy and taste great. With HelloFresh, you can make meals that taste like you're eating out, but for less money and in the comfort of your own home. I've had great luck cooking delicious meals from HelloFresh in the past. All the ingredients came without my needing to plan anything or go to the store, when it was time to make dinner, everything was on hand, it took less than 30 minutes to make, and everybody loved it. So I'm really looking forward to making this week's balsamic tomato and herb chicken and pork carnitas tacos. Oh my gosh, I'm excited. Also, HelloFresh donated over 4 million meals to charity in 2020. Spice things up with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. They're offering you 10 free meals, including free shipping, when you go to hellofresh.com nocturne10 and use code nocturne10. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash Nocturne10 and use code Nocturne10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. listening to nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. 11:02:45 seconds. Right. See you at the gate.
1: The exit out of San Francisco under the Golden Gate Bridge on a normal day is quite thrilling, but to do it at night with all sorts of difficult and complex conditions is on another level. Bye, Leah. Bye, Bye, Leah. (laughs) See you in Hawaii. Oh my gosh. I feel immense pride. (laughs) I feel that that was a game of chess and I played it really well. (laughs) My name is Leah Ditton. And I am a professional sailor, ocean rower, author, artist, self-inventor.
0: This nighttime exit out of San Francisco under the Golden Gate Bridge that Leah is talking about, it's in a rowboat.
1: So I left the Corinthian Yacht Club at 11 p.m. at night with two witnesses for the Guinness Record. And I rowed towards the bridge. And actually in that one hour of leaving the yacht club, from the Yacht Club to the Golden Gate Bridge, the wind picked up and I thought, oh no, I'm not even going to make it to the gate. (laughs) How embarrassing. (laughs) I was going sideways. I was getting pushed away from the gate. This wasn't going well at all. Like, this is not a good start. Anyway, I make it to the gate and I'm still sideways. I'm not in control really in the way that I would like. I'm getting pushed towards the middle of the bridge and Uh, I'm thinking it's a bust it's a bust before it's even started and then there is one long loud blast and that means you're in the path of a ship and I look to the right and Angel Island is eclipsed by a tanker (laughs) and all you can see is one red light on the top like a cherry and I'm in its path and I have to move out of the way and so my heart rate goes through the roof as we now hit the oars in a way that we rarely want to experience start breaking out into sweat and rowing out of the path. So I'm out of the path of the ship, and then it occurs to me that this has put me actually in quite a good place. So I'm in the middle of the bridge. I'm in the peak flow of the tide, and the tide at its strongest is gonna help me punch into this wind, and I'm out the gate, boom. And then as I get away from the gate, the wind just disappears, and we're off. And of course, this is the beginning of my journey, so I'm like, next stop, Hawaii.
0: In the spring of 2020, Leah didn't set out to row alone from San Francisco to Hawaii. It would be 2,500 miles in a 21-foot fiberglass rowboat.
1: San Francisco to Hawaii was supposed to be training in my quest to row from Japan to San Francisco. I called it the half marathon before the full marathon.
0: Only two people have rowed alone from Japan to San Francisco. Both men. Both towed the last several miles to land.
1: So it remains one of the last great firsts that is to row land to land. Prior to this trip, I had rowed from Portland to Iwaco, so 100 miles down the Columbia River, out to sea, all the way down to San Francisco. And previous to that, San Francisco to Santa Barbara, huge dramas with that one as well. And in the middle set records as the first person to row around the Farallon Islands. It took four attempts. and also non-stop around Catalina. Rowing to Hawaii this summer was my 14th ocean crossing. So the ocean part isn't an issue. I know I will survive. And I've crossed the Atlantic alone on racing sailboats three times. So I've had every kind of drama (laughs) that can be had in an ocean. When I rode the Atlantic, that was my ninth crossing of the Atlantic. I had no issues or qualms about the Atlantic at all. The question was about the rowing.
0: Leah was introduced to ocean rowing in 2008. Never in my mind up until
1: that point did I think of myself as an athlete.
0: Two years later, with a partner, she became the 53rd woman to ever row across the Atlantic Ocean. This trip across the Pacific would be the longest distance she would row alone, by far.
1: I rowed the Atlantic with another person. And when you row with another person, you trade in and out. So every three hours, we would switch he would go in the cabin, I would go on the oars, and then we would switch. And so we did a lot of rowing at night. However, when I switched to preparing to row solo, I realized that it wasn't productive to row at night, that the human growth hormone is released a couple of hours after you go to sleep, and that the night hours are best used for recovery. So the hours that I rowed at night were by extreme necessity only. And by that, I mean that I had to get myself out of harm's way, or if I didn't row now, then dire things would happen.
0: So Leah had made it through the Golden Gate, narrowly avoiding a tanker. She then had to navigate through the channel markers while being assaulted by large waves. Then, after all that she encountered an unexpected fleet of cargo ships coming in from the ocean.
1: It's like a circus parade of ships coming my way, and I am so close to them that they are getting freaked out. That's really very rare. Usually it's the other way. You are freaked out by these giant ships that are half a mile long. What's happening on board the bridge is that you're coming up on their radar and on their computer screen, and they can't see you they know you're there but they can't see you and they really need to confirm that they know where you are so each ship in turn turned on the search beam and a search beam on a commercial ship is about two to four foot diameter light it's apocalyptic blaze so these ships are turning on their searchlight and looking for me like fishing for a pea in soup (laughs) you know and so i'm getting blazed i mean it's such a blitz of light that my heart rate goes through the roof and I can't see what I'm doing at all. But I have the confidence from my years of experience to know that I'm okay. I am where I'm allowed to be. Anyway, this troop of cargo ships meets the pilot boat, pilots get on the ships and in they go to San Francisco and I breathe out.
0: This is all in the first hour and a half after leaving San Francisco. The pilot vessel sticks with Leah for the next few hours to make sure she's okay.
1: I think the pilot vessel left me around 5 or 6 in the morning just as the light was starting to change. And I exited the traffic separation zone, I think, at 9.34 a.m. And by then, I was becoming overwhelmed with the desire to sleep. So now I'm about five miles off the Farallon Islands, and finally I can put down my sea anchor, which is a giant parachute. And that enables me to control my drift while I sleep. But even with the sea anchor down, you are drifting and before you let go and go to sleep you want to know that that drift is relatively under control and what direction you're drifting in so okay I made it through the night I crossed all of the danger zones and I'm off the farallons but I don't want to be drifting into the farallons I don't want to be drifting back into the shipping lanes (laughs) so you need to wake up every few hours to make sure that you're not drifting off wildly in the wrong direction. Because the parachute, even though it does a really good job, it can hook into currents at a much lower level and just sail you off into the abyss. (laughs) If you sleep through the night, it's a rare thing.
0: Rowing an ocean alone is a monumental and risky undertaking, greatly affected by the mindset of the rower. And two other rowers who Leah knew tragically died right around the time she was setting out.
1: Really, people don't die at sea. You know, it might seem very dangerous to row to Hawaii, but only nine people have died in almost 200 years of ocean rowing. Okay, it's a very small sport, but nine is not many, and two of those in the last year. But, you know, the two in the last year bring it home that there is a risk.
0: In April, before she left, one rower washed up in the Philippines.
1: And his body was inside the boat, but missing head and feet. This is really days before I was planning to leave myself. It, it was hard because I, I was living in my boat at the time of the news. You know, I was living in the shell that he would have you know, washed up in. The parallel between the two of us was huge. And I saw for the first time the situation that I could be in myself. I saw the, the pain that I would cause my own family if that had been me. And that's difficult when you still want to do something, to know that it will hurt other people. And then, a couple of weeks in, the woman ahead of me, trying to set a record also, is found dead hanging to the side of her boat.
0: This other woman, Angela, had been trying to take a southern route to Hawaii, which was Leah's preferred route as well.
1: And I think because Angela went south and then died, I think I had a fear that was irrational that if I went south, I would also die. (laughs) And it became a sort of fear of going south.
0: So after leaving the Farallon Islands, a notoriously difficult area to row.
1: I was trying to row west while the waves wanted to take me south. And that's terribly dangerous. Your risk of getting wet, your risk of getting rolled. You know, your risk of the wave kind of hitting the boat on the side. But there was no other option. The California current, the wind, the prevailing wind, everything wanted to take me south, south, south. And of course, in my mind, south is death. South is Angela and her demise, you know. And so I'm fighting to go west, fighting to get off the coast, just keep fighting through these waves, through these troughs. But, you know, as the waves get bigger and bigger, that's not clever.
0: Leah pushed west against wind and waves for almost three weeks. She did it by virtue of sheer will a kind of will that makes you think you can do something like row across an ocean by yourself in the first place.
1: I didn't have any doubt that I would
0: make it to Hawaii. She had no doubt she would make it, but that begs the question of why do it in the first place? In the past, when Leah has talked about her motivation for these intense endeavors at sea, she cited personal challenge, setting records, being an example for young girls, raising awareness about ocean protections. This time, her motivations were a little more oblique.
1: I've always known that I wanted children, but I've also led this very adventurous life, which is the opposite from a stable platform to have children. (laughs) And when I was 35, I said to my friends, if I don't meet someone and have a baby, then I'm going to row the Pacific. It became a running joke. And then I realized that I wasn't going to meet someone and have a baby because I needed to row the Pacific. It was always going to be something undone and that really I should just get on with it, which <laughs> isn't quite straightforward. It's very complicated. The motivation for wanting to row an ocean is not a one-liner. You know, it's a it's this complicated set of reasons.
0: Leah is still unraveling the complex reasons that drive her to row oceans. The motivation for this crossing has some unsettling layers.
1: In late 2010, I worked with a photographer in France who went on to stalk me for the best part of seven years. And for the first year or two, I didn't know who it was, and it ate me alive. And I ended up moving out of the UK to Spain, effectively lived as a hermit. I pretty much washed my hands of being a professional sailor, walked away from writing for magazines and and all the contacts that I had, and started again.
0: During that time, Leah says that it was like living in a horror movie. While her stalker never physically harmed her, he went to incredible lengths to harass, attaching recent photos of her to disturbing emails, and calling from untraceable numbers. Two years in, she learned his identity. He was someone known in the sailing community. Police got involved, but for complicated reasons, little could be done. Leah went into virtual hiding. She took a non-sailing related job in the Sahara Desert. She stopped posting anything on the internet. She suffered hot sweats and nightmares. Leah describes the experience as the monster under her bed. After seven years, it was time to turn on the light.
1: I needed a way back to being myself. And I wasn't sure, I think, if I would ever really row from Japan to San Francisco, but I wanted to walk that path towards that goal and I knew somehow that that journey would take me back to finding who I was.
0: A big part of finding her way back to who she was involved shedding her cloak of invisibility.
1: One of the greatest fears of rowing any of these, these crossings was the need to be visible. That I needed to put content on the internet. It was sort of it became a big stumbling block for me.
0: It's tempting to think that Leo would feel safe from her stalker, just by virtue of the fact that she'd be in the middle of the ocean.
1: Well, at some point, a fear of being stalked becomes internalized, that you carry it. You don't, He doesn't have to do anything, I'd say, anymore, that it's inside me. How do you get that out? This perception of being watched, that everything you do is being watched.
0: Ultimately, Leah wrote her stalker an open letter, naming him, and spoke about her experience publicly. It was a huge step toward finding her way back to her former self. The next step involved an entirely different type of courage. Back to her 2,500-mile solo journey from San Francisco to Hawaii. After having successfully exited through the Golden Gate in a rowboat, she entered into the gauntlet of challenges and mishaps that would come to characterize the whole epic endeavor. There was the expected bone-chilling cold and damp, the days and days of bleak gray sky subsistence on cold, dehydrated food. She was finally pushing out of the waves and current around 300 miles from the coast of Mexico, at least 100 miles outside the range of the Coast Guard.
1: The current kept pushing me back towards the coast, back and back and back, and I was fighting this coast. And so I was starting to have to row through the night or row into night to to try and break through, break out, break west. And by that, I mean the wind is lighter generally at night. And so I was starting to shift my rowing schedule and having a big push from sort of seven in the evening till midnight nonstop to try and break west. And so finally I break west and I'm I'm heading west. But now we've got huge waves and I didn't quite know why these waves were what they were, but what was happening was the there was a strong current coming up from the south, meeting strong wind from the north, and it was creating these vertical waves. I'd say 40 feet, a couple of stories high. Yeah, so we're in this watery theme park and it's a hellscape of waves coming at you from different sides and angles. It's loud. they roar at you. You're getting sprayed if not soaked. Waves lap over the side of the boat, sometimes smack against the side of the boat, rain you in spray. It's not fun, but it's challenging. And, and you tell yourself that it's not gonna be forever, you just need to get through this part and everything will be great when you do. <laughs> but you have to stay pretty alert to make sure that your oar is out of the water at the right time, and doesn't get snatched by the wave, and then that you're braced for when the boat goes up or down. So the boat gets picked up sideways and then drop down sideways. So then you have this difficulty to row because one oar is always in the water and the other one gets airborne every now and then. It's a fight, there's nothing pleasant about it at all. I saw two waves I've never seen in my life in 19 years of going to sea and that that was this incredible vertical wave and it just dropped, drop, drop. like when a wave curls over the top you usually get one or two breaking curls but now I was seeing three or four and I was like oh my god that's going to create kind of a watery avalanche. You know, the height of that wave and the drop of the water, oh my goodness. And then I saw what this almost like Japanese woodcut wave and it, I, I saw it coming, I was far enough away from it that I spun the stern into it and it spat the boat off at 12.6 knots which is about 10 times the usual speed. Like some kind of snooker ball got zapped. But that was my warning. I was feeling fear that whole day that I was in that sort of zone of quite big waves. So the next day, I wasn't so lucky.
0: Well, let's pause here, because as we know, between one day and the next is the night. And it's particularly unsafe to try to row giant waves in the darkness.
1: I don't think you can row in waves like that at night, it's blind boxing, you can't see the waves coming, all of those little judgments that you're making, decisions that you're making about where your oars should be, the angle of the boat, you can't make them in the dark. And I don't think it's it's safe to be out at night in those kind of conditions. You're tired, so you're more likely to fall over or fall in. So I'm very careful not to let myself out of the cabin, really, at night. I clean my teeth leaning out of the cabin. I pee in the cabin. I don't get out of the cabin once night falls. And that's a choice. You know, I'm choosing to row a lot of hours during the day. So I'm very tired at night.
0: So this night, about three weeks in, after traversing waves unlike any she's ever seen, Leah closes herself into her tiny sleeping compartment.
1: Well, you tell yourself that you're safe in the cabin, or safer in the cabin, and then you close the door, and you know then you begin a twelve-hour assault by waves and wind and element. You had to tell your brain that the boat is solid and and you're going to be fine and everything's okay. But the noise, you know, these waves colliding with this little acorn that you're in, <laughs> you know, it's. Jagged on the nerves. You don't sleep well if you sleep at all. You get tossed around in there. You know it's brutal. But part of your brain is always awake. Some senses are alert to more extreme danger. You're listening out for different changes in the noise, and you might wake up not knowing why you've woken up, but you'll wake up.
0: And if the noise doesn't wake you,
1: you get shoved into the wall. I have two long, sort of padded cushions that I wedge myself either side of. So I kind of pack myself in with those.
0: Leah rose the morning after the giant waves not particularly rested. Conditions weren't much improved from the previous day. She struggled to row through the choppy ocean.
1: And I remember seeing the wave. It was an avalanche of water heading my way. I saw the wave and I knew we're going over. In my brain, my mind said, it's happening. This is it, we're going in. There was nothing i could do so once i realized that there was nothing i could do don't get separated from the boat so i wrapped my arm around the carbon safety rail and then we began this dance i got thrown into the water the boat got rolled but my arm was wrapped around the carbon rail so we're in this sort of poetic dance together me and my boat and then when the carbon rail got thrust out of my arm strangely the opposite rail got shoved into my arm and so we danced again (laughs) with the other side of the boat and then there is no rail and I'm popping up beside my boat and the boat's upside down and I look at the boat upside down and I know I have to act immediately My boat was not turning round by itself. It's supposed to be designed to self-right, which means if it gets knocked over, as it did, it should come back up by itself. It wasn't doing that. And I realize in that instant, it's not doing that. And I have one millisecond to do something about it, or that's a permanent situation. So I jump on the boat and I Throw my body at it and try to scale up to it, and the boat comes down with me. Like it, it worked. But then I have a flash of fear because there's nothing to hold on to. I'm being pushed back in the water by the underside of the hull, and there's nothing to hold on to. Anyway, the boat is now upright, as it should be, and I pop up again. And I have to tell myself to grab the safety rail, the the rope that goes around the side of the boat. And then worse, I have to tell myself to close my hand. And that's when I realized the full horror of my situation. If you have to tell your hand to close your fingers, you are in trouble. So I grab the side rail of the boat and try to pull my body over it. And it's gone. There's no strength at all in my body left. And I don't know why. Is it the cold? Was it the effort of trying to pull a 1,300 pound boat over with 160 pounds of body weight? I don't even know. And in that moment, I know that that was how Angela died. I was sure of it. This is what happened to Angela. She couldn't get back on board. It was this. I was one breath from drowning. And I got angry. <laughs> I thought, this isn't no, no, because <laughs> I knew that there was no third attempt. Thought so if I fail on the second attempt, it's over. And somehow I kind of summoned from deep inside some kind of core strength and just throw my body on the boat. So I'm on. I just got That's 360 I'm going to the boat myself. Anyway, I'm now on the boat. And I'm looking at everything drifting away that wasn't attached, and I want to swim after those things, and I have to talk myself out of it. You know, stay on the boat. In fact, your next problem is hypothermia. So, I am stunned. I you know secure the oars, which amazingly didn't break and are still there. And I check the water maker. That's the machine that desalinates water so I can drink, and it's fine. And when I see that it's fine, I know I can keep going. I know that there may be a ton of other problems, but if you can drink water, you can keep going. So I need to get in the cabin, I need to get out of my clothes, and I need to get warm and dry as fast as possible. But I'm staring at the compass, and the compass is wedged upside down. That was the moment where I realized what had happened. I actually went upside down. Anyway, we get in the cabin. The cabin is a complete mess. There's water dripping from the ceiling. There is nothing anywhere it should be. It's a puddle. And so I get inside the cabin, but I have to make space to even get into it. And then I begin mopping and making a huge pile of soaked clothing. And um, there's a lot of work to do, and I get on it.
0: Almost no time goes by as Leah works on bringing order to the cabin.
1: And then I see a ship on the horizon on my chart plotter that's going to be on collision course with me. I'm thinking, really? So I call them up and they respond on the radio and it's a warship. It's USS Russell, warship 59. And they're actually coming to see if I was okay. It was so uncanny that they were there within almost three hours of that capsize. That was my opportunity to get off. That was my opportunity to end it. It was a real put-you-on-the-spot moment they said are you in distress and that was very difficult to answer because at that moment you know I'm wearing a dry shirt my favorite jacket eating a giant bag of kettle chips arguably not in distress but I also knew that the days ahead were not going to be easy I had just gone through something the breadth of which I didn't fully grasp even in that moment and that there would be electronics that wouldn't work tomorrow that might be working right now so I said no I'm fine thank you and then they left and then we began the night, and the night was full of, you know, reckoning and self-doubt. Of should I have got off on the warship? You know, you idiot, Leah. <laughs> that was your moment. You, what are you doing? You sent away the help boat. <laughs> now, now, what if you capsize again in the dark? How are you going to get out? Should I be wearing my dry suit? Should I be wearing my helmet? Of course, I didn't sleep at all. I just lay there, terrified. Or waves exploded on the boat and push the boat around and you see the issue was nothing had changed. You know the boat was as it was. We were still going as we were. What was to say there wasn't another wave coming to do the same thing?
0: The waves continued to batter her for days.
1: So I I was right. It wasn't easy in the days that followed. I, I had waves of nausea. I had a real physical reaction to what had happened. When I looked at the waves I felt flashes of fear. It was difficult I've wrestled with it. And that battle continued for weeks and weeks. And we're still in the unending blanket of cloud. And I was depressed. I was so worn thin. You know, I I couldn't convince myself that I could still make it to Hawaii and not run out of food or even make it west to Hawaii at all. And I felt trapped and stuck in a sort of prison of my own making.
0: This time was a sort of watery purgatory, in which Leah would accrue miles only to have them vanish, like some kind of twisted game of chutes and ladders.
1: There was a period where there was no wind, and I was really at the mercy of the current, and the current wanted to eat my miles. (laughs) So I would row all day, mostly on very flat water with zero wind, and then reached the limit of being able to row any more during the day and watch it all disappear overnight. And it felt like some kind of trial of human spirit. I kept telling myself all throughout it, things will change, just hang on. And then day 41, finally the wind went aft and the sun came out and things seemed to change. And for the next two weeks, things were good, even. I started to... Enjoy being out there. You know, this was this was the this was the Pacific I wanted to row with blue, sparkly seas and sunshine.
0: With the giant waves and capsized behind her, Leah was able to settle into appreciating the surroundings.
1: The transition from black night to sunrise. Oh wow, I love those times. Just the the sky sort of waking up. But before it has woken up. And then there were a lot of nights with really vivid moons where you could row at night and with full visibility. You didn't need a light on the compass. You could see the compass. You had shadows casting onto the boat because of the moon. I mean, you almost need sunglasses.
0: Of course, Leah is experiencing all of this, the hardship and the beauty, entirely alone.
1: People ask a lot do you get lonely? And I think I need to clear up firstly the difference between being lonely and being alone. And a lot of people are quite comfortable being alone and I am one of those. On the ocean when I'm alone, I actually feel really connected. You know, I want to take as many people who want to come on the journey with me through my blogs and through little videos and images. So I feel very connected, more connected than ever on land.
0: Also, she's not really alone out there.
1: So last night, what sounded like a bird thumping the deck was actually this, a squid. There were a lot of flying fish, and they would die spectacularly all over the deck at night. And some of them you could save if you were quick, and if you heard them and they woke you up. They were all leaping out the way of other predators. I sort of, not quite talk to them, but they become other creatures and you now have company. Uh, I saw three sharks, and the second shark came <laughs> with a bit of a bump in the middle of the night. Uh, yeah, he rammed the rudder. It was like being rear-ended in a car, and I knew immediately that it was a shark trying to eat the fish from under the boat. The day of the tiger shark, oh my goodness, I mean, just the other side of my oar, the water erupted, just turned white, and there was all this thrashing around. And, and these tuna fish that had been following my boat, almost like an escort, there are about four or five yellow tail tuna with opal colours. I mean, they're just so beautiful. And I realised that the, the tuna fish were using my boat as a shield. I was right in the middle of the action. <laughs> so I just stood there and watched. And the tiger shark got one of the fish, but it got away. And it went round the other side of my boat and swam about a foot from the hull. And then this fish went through this spectacular death-throw carnival of color. So it was going black and green and, and I'm just watching. I'm watching it die and then slowly it can't keep up with the drift of my boat. And the shark's watching and waiting. And then the fish starts to slip behind the boat and then, boom, the shark got it.
0: The nature watching didn't last long.
1: Day 52, I was having a nap in the afternoon, which I always did, and it was hot because now we had the sun, and it's so hot that I've opened the cabin. I've got slowly more comfortable opening the cabin while I sleep. And I'm sleeping, and I wake up to boom! And the horror of water pouring in, not knowing if I can get out. Like a wave train comes out of the northeast, out of nowhere, and the boat goes over onto its roof with the door open. Then the boat gets rolled back over because after the first capsize, I had put water ballast into the compartment under the bunk. taking a nap inside and three quarter rolled with a big wave. And now the boat's heavily listing. But I just couldn't understand it. I mean, I'm standing up in the cabin going, whoa, what happened? You know, it's like a gorgeous sunny day and the boat just rolled over. And worse, the boat is listing hard. It's full of water, like a lot of water. And I know that that situation right there is incredibly dangerous because if you're leaning hard over and another wave comes, you're never going to recover from that. If you capsize, you're fully upside down with no prospect of rolling back over. I have to go into action. I have to get that water out of that boat as fast as I can.
0: While the first capsize had brought Leah to the brink of catastrophe, this second one was actually more disturbing.
1: The second capsize immediately flagged up that this was the boat. The first capsize was a spectacular wave of which any boat would get rolled. But now we had an issue with the boat. It wasn't entirely just the weather. The second capsize should not have happened, period. There was just not enough weight in the bottom of the boat to counteract the force of that kind of wave. We have a flaw in the design.
0: Leah had had some work done to the boat, including changing the type and location of batteries, which had altered its center of gravity. Changes
1: had been made to the boat, which basically destabilized it. So it was clear the boat had a stability problem, and that it needed more weight. And the only weight I could add to the boat was water, and I know that time is critical. So I started flooding compartments. Now, that's a very odd concept, to put water into a boat. You have to get over a big hurdle to accept that you're going to put water into the boat. So I put water into the boat. I flooded compartments. It sloshed like a swimming pool. Obviously I had to sleep with the sloshing noise of water inside the boat and outside the boat now. I'm also devastated that this has happened again. But it happened late in the afternoon, uh, maybe three or four in the afternoon, and there's no time for anything to dry. And this time, because all that water poured in, the cabin is soaked. My sleeping bag is soaked. My mattress is soaked. And I know going into night, this is going to be a hell of a night. I have nothing as dry. How am I going to stay warm? And I'm now 1,000 miles from land. The nearest shipping is 36 hours away. No one can help me, even for the next couple of days if I decide that I need help. And if you ended up in the water, you'd get sunburnt, and there are sharks, and that That's quite a different prospect. Unlike the first one where before I'd even had a chance to think about it, that warship was (laughs) around my boat and I was only 300 miles from land at the time anyway. So this time I'm really very stranded. We go through the night really without sleeping. But then, but then there's this scratching noise. After it gets dark, there's a scratching noise above my head. And I poke my head up and there's this giant bird with claws scratching into the solar panels. And those solar panels are critical to having power, to making water, to drink, to stay alive. So that bird cannot stay scratching my solar panels. But it's also, the bird is in a terrible state. Birds only settle on objects in the ocean to die. This bird is dying. And it's huge. It had a four-foot wingspan and it's pooping this black stuff and it won't go away and I can't bear it. So I get my GoPro extension stick and I poke it and it just moves a little bit further away. It just won't leave and I have to give up and listen to this scratching sound for the rest of the night. It's pitch black and there's a dying bird scratching the deck and I'm cold and shivering and wet, thinking, what does this mean? You know, what what does this (laughs) symbolise, you know? Am I gonna die? You know, is this my warning to get off? It's definitely one of the worst nights of of my life that I can think of. I'm alone, I'm 36 hours from the nearest ship. I'm on a boat that's just been proven is unsafe and unstable with a dying bird. There was no sleep. I'm just watching the hours go by until it's light and the bird's gone in the morning but the scratches are still there.
0: Sleep had already been tenuous, never knowing if she would stray off course or if a tanker might come along in the night. But now, lack of sleep was becoming a more serious challenge.
1: I couldn't go to sleep or I couldn't stay asleep, and that was becoming more and more of a very big problem. Almost the reason to be rescued in itself if you don't sleep or cannot sleep, you can get into quite a state quite quickly.
0: The problem was that Leah had become hypervigilant to the sound of every large wave.
1: Because the thing is that the waves that I was hearing were exactly the same sounds as the one that turned the boat over. So your brain is on high alert the whole time because that's the sound of danger. How do you turn that off?
0: One of Leah's support team members was a high-performance psychologist who had experience with elite soldiers in combat.
1: And he said, focus on the waves. He said, instead of trying to block it out, why don't you give it space, allow it to be there, you can't make it go away, you can't change it. And that worked, actually. I could now go to sleep, I just couldn't stay asleep. (laughs) I'd sleep for 40 minutes, or an hour or two.
0: While sleep was a bit improved, Leah was in a dark place. She gave up thinking that she would make it to Hawaii. She was anxious about encountering a storm in an unsafe boat and the worry that would cause her friends and family. She was toying with the idea of getting to a shipping lane where she could abort the trip. But in the process, she kept on rowing.
1: Because what am I supposed to do? (laughs) I don't quit. That's how I got to this point in my career. But I'm living in the boat from which I have nearly drowned twice, on deck and in the cabin now. I can't even begin to process either of those events while I'm still in the wreckage. So all I can do is be in that moment. The mantra that helped me was right here, right now. Right here, right now. And there's something very calming even about saying that that just brings you right back to that moment.
0: That mantra, right here, right now, allows Leah to continue putting the oars in and out of the water until the point that land comes into view. (coughs)
1: I can see Molokai, and the big island. Land! 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 So I see land, it's and it's funny, it's hard to imagine it still exists after a while. We see Molokai, and we're passing Molokai, and about 7am on the day before I arrived, I realised that the only way I'm going to make Oahu, or any of the islands, is if I row non-stop from that moment onwards. It's a hell of a commitment after 86 days to realize that the only way you're going to get to where you want to go is by not stopping rowing.
0: It would take 23 hours of non-stop rowing to get to land.
1: I didn't know that was humanly possible. I really didn't. But I could tell that the current was pushing me away from the island and that I couldn't let the boat drift. I couldn't use a sea anchor. Any of the things you might do to rest would take me away from it. And so I settled in for that, really. But about six in the evening on that day, I was losing the battle. The current was taking me south of the island fast. Like it somehow had accelerated. And I was really only four or five miles from the island at this point. But I was, it all was lost. I mean, I was about to get swept south to who knows where and the only way to get to that island was going to be to be towed in and I just wasn't having that (laughs) I wasn't you know I'd given up the idea of the record but I just the humiliation or just the the no factor of getting towed in after all that and I thought we didn't no you know we didn't go through all of that to get towed in I mean seriously I could have got off on a ship 30 days ago if this is how it's going to end so I fought I fought and I fought and I fought and I dumped the ballast out of the boat. I just ditched all the water and then immediately regretted it because I was rowing in pitch black off the island and the only waves I could see were the ones that were breaking white. And you could hear them coming but you couldn't really see what angle they were gonna hit. I got repeatedly soaked. I can't see these waves. I'm trying to row in the trough, so between them, but it's getting more and more sort of dangerous. And then a wave picks up the boat into the air, we are airborne, and then we get dropped with a big thud back down, and that happened twice. But I just stuck in and I became
0: my own little cheerleader. She started counting down the fractions of the miles by seconds according to the GPS.
1: I'd be like 50 and then I'd get to 100 and I'd be like 100, and then when I got to a mile, I'd be you know, 34 miles. Do, 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 do. I just became my own cheerleader through the night and I clawed those miles back up to the island, and then between the end of the island and Diamond Head, which is a crater, the wind switches off, and there's a sort of rumbling swell, and a lemon moon rises, just a sliver of lemon moon rises between the two peaks, and I could hear traffic on land rumbling. My body was complaining every which way. You know, muscles were hurting. I was desperately hungry, needed a pee. I hadn't done any of these things for hours and hours and hours. And then this inflatable dinghy zooms towards me and it has Tim and Kenny on it.
0: They were part of her support team.
1: And they trail me all the way in. And it's about 3 in the morning. And as we get nearer to Waikiki, the hotels are all dark because Hawaii was in code red lockdown. All the hotels, beaches, parks, restaurants and bars were closed but they had lit certain hotel rooms to create the shape of a heart. So all of these hotels had these hearts coming at you from the dark, which was quite surreal and beautiful. And so on the rib, Tim is driving and Kenny is constantly on the phone. I'm thinking, who is he calling at three in the morning? I can't understand it. I had no idea they were doing an Instagram live stream. Or that 45,000 people were on it no idea at all and the next thing we're outside the marina entrance and a small powerboat comes out and turns on a bank of lights on me that was to film my arrival and then we row in and there's a squall that's been over the land and that passes and the light breaks and it's it's sunrise and it's sort of an amazing timing i'm rowing down this channel to the harbour and the yacht club just as the light is rising over the hills and And then I arrive, and it's 6 a.m. and 8 seconds.
0: She did it. Leah rode alone from San Francisco to Hawaii over 86 days, breaking the woman's world record in the process.
1: It's funny, but I don't really, at this point in time, feel any great pride in having made it to Hawaii and set a record. And I'm quite perplexed by that. Why don't I feel all of these congratulations that everyone's telling me, you know, I I smashed a record, I have a Guinness World Record now, I don't feel any of it. However, the exit out of San Francisco through the, under the Golden Gate Bridge, I feel immense pride. (laughs) And where does that end, you know? Is the desire to do something ever satisfied? And I don't think it is until you understand what drove you to want to do it in the first place, like, fully understand all of the complex aspects of that drive.
0: Some clarity is emerging, though.
1: It's only still been a few weeks, really, since I arrived, but I didn't think about being stalked once. I'd say that's a huge win. I did something I never could have even have imagined five or eight years ago, which is put content online that was vulnerable. And I've been putting things on social media since. So I'd say that I succeeded in what I set out to achieve.
0: But this ocean crossing is only one chapter of an ongoing story. This voyage was training for the bigger goal, rowing the North Pacific from Japan to San Francisco, the full marathon.
1: Well, that's very complicated, because I'm 40. (laughs) And there's no way I can pull off the North Pacific next year, it's too soon even for my body to recover. So you're looking at 2022, 2023, I'd be 43. And I'm really at a point where I have to go, what do you want? And I can't quite understand why I put so much energy into chasing crossings of oceans and not just put that same energy into meeting someone and having a relationship and having a family. But I feel that by doing the one, I'm getting the answers to being more complete, to be able to have the other but I may never reach that point.
0: Leah has a philosophy about rowing oceans.
1: You can't expect anything. All you know when you leave land is that you're going on an adventure. You don't know that you're gonna get there. So you live with that great uncertainty.
0: You've been listening to Nocturne. I'm Vanessa Lowe. Nocturne is produced by me and was created by myself and Kent Sparling, who also composed the theme music. Thanks to HelloFresh for supporting Nocturne. Go to HelloFresh.com Nocturne10 and use code Nocturne10 for 10 free meals, including free shipping. Again, that's HelloFresh.com Nocturne10 and use the code Nocturne10. The sounds you heard of Leah's journey were recorded by her. Find out more about Leah Ditton's adventures at sea, as well as ways you can support her at rowleahrow.com. Thank you to Randy Hager for joining our happy possum level of support on Patreon. Head on over to Patreon.com slash Nocturne Podcast to help us out. You can also rate and review Nocturne on Apple Podcasts, and it would be great if you tell everyone you know about the show. I bet your parents would love it. Till next time.